you want to turn to 1 Timothy chapter 2. Um, we're starting a, well, last week, Matt Fox got us off to a flying start on our series on prayer. Is that right? I've had such great reports about that. Thank you for supporting and praying for us. Well, myself and Levi, we were in Frankfurt, had a really good time with the plant there. They're doing well. They're doing very, very well. Um, but do keep praying for them. This pioneering business is not easy. Um, but God is with them and, 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 and good things are happening. Um, so part of this sermon series on prayer is because we want to you know, we, we speak on prayer. But also part of it is as a prelude to our month of prayer in January. Uh, was anyone not here last week and therefore didn't receive their program for our Plan A prayer month? If so, we've got people ready to give out Plan A prayer leaflets. So please wave your hand in the air if you need a leaflet because I think Adam's got some guys that are... Adam and Chris are giving them out. Keep your hands up until you've received one of these. Um, it's going to be an absolute storming month. We've tried what we can um, to um, f- fit prayer into what we normally do. So the morning, Tuesday morning prayer will be an hour and a half instead of an hour. So just elongate that a bit. Our team prayer on a Sunday between 10, 10 past 10 and 10.30, we're just going to open that up and say, please just come to church a bit early and pray with us. So we're going to try and just... Add in terms of the things we normally do for prayer, just bulk that out. Plus, we will have a midweek meeting each week to pray together, either all together or in postcodes. It's all on there, but please engage with that. We're looking at Friday will be a fast day, so we'll look to all be, um, we'll sort of call the church to fast and pray for Fridays in January. Maybe we'll do a little bit of teaching on that so you can understand a bit more about fasting from the Bible. But um, it will be a time for us to really grow in prayer as a church and get to a, a strong place. This whole thing comes out of the conviction that prayer is the main business of the church. Um, there are other things to do, but if we're doing them without doing that, we're going to fail miserably. Um, do you believe that? Just a question. <laughs> Um, we've got to ask ourselves these questions because we all live out of our genuine convictions. You can say yes and amen, but actually we live out of the things we truly believe. So it's really healthy to hold up a mirror and ask, what, what do I believe um, about this? I'm going to define prayer in this way. Calling out to God. That's my definition of prayer. Calling out to God. I'm going to say a couple of things on that before we get into the scripture. One is, why don't, you just say, why don't you just say talking to God, Steph? Why don't you, why don't you just say calling out to God? Why am I not just talking to God? But here's why. It's because it's a phrase that's used in the Bible. Also, that it, it kind of just helpfully, I think, m- makes it slightly different from everyday conversation with other people. Now, I know in prayer, we haven't got to put on funny voices. We can be, of course, totally ourselves because Jesus has made a way for us to come as we are into the presence of God. Nevertheless, he is God. And we're always sort of walking that tightrope of kind of, as Matt Redmond puts it in one of his early albums, the friendship and the fear. And as soon as you discard one of those, you only fear God or you're only friendly with God, you're going to go wrong. The friendship and the fear is really important. So I've used that term calling out to God because it kind of helps us just, just stop and say, oh, hold on a minute. Yeah, this isn't just a, a, like a conversation with anyone else. Um, secondly, you often find that that there is something about prayer throughout the scriptures, especially prayer meetings when people gather to pray, where there's an earnestness that kind of takes it up a gear to just talking. And that's important that we, that we think about that, reflect on that, um, that we are to be an earnest people in prayer. And the final thing I want to say is because calling out involves opening your mouth and getting your vocal cords working. I actually think it's important that prayer involves talking to God. 
Now, why? Well, here's why. Because there's something about speech, as those of us that are made in the image of God, there's something about speech which bring, is an expression of faith and brings things to, to a culminating point. It, it makes the thing real. You see, the whole of creation is a result of God's speech. Speech, divine speech brings reality. We are made in his image. There's something about speaking out which makes the thing real and keeps us from that kind of praying which can become nothing more than pondering or self-reflection. Pondering and self-reflection are fine, but it's not prayer. Prayer is calling out to God. And there's something about articulating what's really in your heart and pouring it out that, is, that actually is part of the very thing. Actually articulating it, you, 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 very often in, in that act, you're making yourself known to God. Now he knows, but that's not the point. He wants relationship. So making yourself known to him is vital. And so these things are important, I believe. And I would encourage you to be, to be calling out to God, to be speaking, to be... The Bible says, I believe, therefore I spoke. There's, there's something about faith and speaking. And to, to guard us from simply getting into a, 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 something just simply within our own head. Um, it's fine. Of course, there are moments where you know, you're, in, you're, in a, in a, you're in the workplace <laughs> or on a train or in a meeting. And it's one of those moments where it probably wouldn't be appropriate to, to, to start a full-on prayer time with the Lord. You, know, you may find yourself um, you know, somewhere you didn't want to be um, after that. But you, know, you can pray in your mind. Of course, God can see and God can hear. But I think, there's, I, think, I think if that's the only way you pray, there's something that the Lord wants to complete to help in our relationship with him. So there we go. Let's read, shall we? 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses uh, 1 to 4. First of all, then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions and thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This is good and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Saviour, who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. Father, thank you for this powerful, poignant scripture. Pray, Lord, that you would really help me to speak your word into, into, into our lives. Um, guard me, keep me from presumption, from nonsense, from pride, from stupidity. I pray, Lord, that good things will be said that glorify you. Amen. Amen. So here we go then. First of all, <laughs> first of all, first of all, pray. There it is. I'm going, to just let, I'm going to just let this scripture looser down. It's going to do some crazy things, right? Because so you've, got, you've just got to let it loose and don't tame it. And it does amazing things. First of all, pray. So why so often is it last of all? Or not at all? First of all, pray. Jesus says, look, the harvest is plentiful. Wow, the workers are few. We're rolling up our sleeves. Okay, what are we going to do? What are we going to do? Pray that the Lord of the harvest will thrust workers into the harvest field. Oh, pray first. First of all, I want to ask you, where is, where is your setting where your primary intention is to pray? I want to challenge you today. It's good to pray as you go. It's good. To, well, I'm going from there to there and I'll pray as I do that. That's good. But in that, in that setting, prayer is your secondary intention. You were going from there to there and you fitted prayer into it. I want to ask you, where are you praying in a way that you're not fitting it into anything? You're praying. Where, where is it your place of primary intention? By all means, pray on the way to work. Absolutely. By all means, pray in the toilet when you're in the middle of a meeting and it's not going well and call out to God. Absolutely. 
But, but where, are, where, where are you praying? Because you're praying. First of all, pray. We must search our hearts here. We must face ourselves honestly. Why is it so often last of all or not at all? What's the answer to the question? Now, this isn't, the point of this isn't to make you feel bad because all that leads to is remorse. Remorse is not repentance. <laughs> I don't want that. What's the point of that? Let's all feel bad. Sing a sad song, go home. No. I want us to actually ask ourselves, why is it last of all, if it is? Why is it not at all, if it is? Why this lack of prioritising around prayer? The tyranny of the urgent. So many things clamouring at our, at our door. We all live in the same city. <laughs> and we're all made of the same stuff. I get it. I get it. I really do. This is not easy. But we've got to ask ourselves, what is the reason? There's a reason for every activity that we either do or don't take seriously. So why this lagging behind in prayer? Why isn't it first? I can think of two reasons. I'm sure there's a hundred more. The two I thought of was, number one, we live in a rich part of the world, which means that without realising we're all very proud, which means that we think we can sort things out. And so we, we, we default to prayerless activity. I'll sort it. What's the problem? I'm on it. Because we, we, that, that's the air that we breathe in in our part of the world. You can do it. You can do anything. You can do it. Just make the right decisions. Prioritise. Do this. Do that. You can do it. You can sort it out. It's kind of like a pride. Second reason is we're in the rich part of the world. <laughs> so we're selfish. It's too much like hard work. It's too much like hard work. And so that leads to prayerless inactivity. <laughs> so you can go for prayerless activity. I'll sort it. Or prayerless inactivity. This is hard work praying. I tried it. didn't work. Is that, is that anyone? <laughs> I tried it. didn't work. What you mean is I tried it. It was really hard. God didn't answer straight away. We've got, we've, we've got to, you know, we've got to, we've got to be before God in this and just say, Lord. Now, I, 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 I may be wrong in assuming that for the majority, prayer isn't first of all. And if so, please do forgive me. But I would say I've been in, in enough, I feel I've been in enough pastoral settings and discipleship settings to kind of get a feel for the flock. And I would say that's a theme that comes through a lot. It's been... It, it's, it's actually, I think, it's actually for very many serious Christians at Revelation Church will not have a regular frequent time set aside for prayer and that's what it's for. It's for prayer. That, that, that's going to tell. That will tell. That will tell in your joy. That will tell in your fruitfulness. It just will tell. And I want to keep us from that. And I want to say, please, whatever you do, don't get into the thing of, well, I'm, because most, most of you are young. I'm young. I'll, I'll get there. I, I was young once. And now I am old. <laughs> and it just kind of happened. And I, I, I've kind of got to the point where I've realised I'm no longer at that phase of life where I'm setting my trajectory. I'm in my trajectory that I've set. Wow, that's sobering. And you can spend the whole time saying, I'm, I'm too young, I'm too young. Do you know, I'll tell you the secret, and I've said this to a few people before, this is the sad truth. You're too young and the next day you're too old. There is no sweet spot. Doesn't happen. I thought we did. I thought, well, I'm a bit young. And I, that verse, you know, Timothy's saying, Paul saying to Timothy, don't let anyone despise you because you're young. I, I had that for years and suddenly I realised I'm not young anymore. 
And actually, I'm struggling, feeling irrelevant, and I've got nothing to say to young people. I'm too old. And there was no glory 20, 30 years of being in the sweet spot. So it's good to face these things. Listen to Proverbs 21, verse 1, because we're going to get into the actual context in a minute of what Paul is talking about in terms of specific praying. Proverbs 21, verse 1. The king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he will. Do you believe it? Ask yourself. The president's heart, the prime minister's heart, is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he will. He turns it wherever he will. And yet we know what is the thing that moves God's arm more than anything else? Prayer. Prayer. God has determined, God has ordained in his sovereignty. He has entrusted authority to mankind and has called us to pray. So if we're not praying, then that has a very, very real impact. Anyone heard of deism? Deism is this idea that God made everything, but then he's a bit like winding up a clock. He's basically just let it go and it's, he's working out. It's working itself out now. He no longer intervenes. Um, we may not be deists in terms of our theological understanding, but we may be functional deists in the sense that we never expect God to move and break in. We don't actually expect God to answer our prayers. God rescue us from that. The king's heart, the president's heart, the prime minister's heart is water streams in the hands. Of, he turns it wherever he wishes. And we have access to God to pray. Which is extraordinary. Second thing I want to say is this. He says, Paul says, pray for, not pray against. Anyone hear me? <laughs> pray for. Pray for those kings. Pray for those in high positions. Pray for presidents. Pray for prime ministers, not pray against. Pray for. Anyone hearing me? Yes. Pray for. Not. Against. Pray for. It's the word of God. We have to pray for all people. And we have to pray for those in power and authority, not against them, regardless of who is in power. Do you know who was in power when Paul wrote this? Nero. Nero was a psychopath. Nero accidentally killed his pregnant wife by kicking her in the stomach. Nero set Christians alight in his garden as human torches for his parties. Nero is, is, is suspected of setting lights for Rome as a, as, as a kind of a, a scapegoat so he could blame some people on the mess he was producing with his rule. Nero was in charge. Paul writes that into that context. This is not a book written in an ivory tower. This is not written in a vacuum. This is a context. Nero is in charge of the known world. Paul's saying, pray for those in power. There's something raw about the scripture. We've got to engage with that. The Bible is clear that our battle is not against flesh and blood. That doesn't mean we don't speak out against injustice and the like, but we have to be clear about where our warfare lies. What is it that we are really fighting against? Spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. That is who we are fighting against. That is where the battle is if you're a Christian. If only we were more spiritually sensitive then we would know where to show maximum aggression in the prayer meeting. We would come to pray and we would pray because we are, we are gathered to overcome the forces of darkness that are against every evil thing that happens on this earth. And we have the authority to do so in Christ. And we would pray like it meant that. And we would, ex we would, ex we would express that kind of aggression. And we would know where to show mercy to fallen human beings. 
Whereas so often we judge and attack people and ignore the spiritual realm. Come on, church. Come on, church. There are four words Paul uses to describe the kind of praying we're to be involved with. I don't want to unnecessarily dissect it, but there's some things to draw out. Number one, supplications. This, this word kind of has about it this idea of very clearly of specific requests relevant to our specific situation. Paul says, bring specific requests to God that are very relevant to the specific situation that you are in. We live in a fascinating moment where in two months' time, the most powerful man on the planet will be someone with practically no political experience. He will need our prayers. Okay? He will need our prayers. In the next couple of years, we ourselves will have to negotiate a very complex separation from the EU. Or if, and it's a big if, but if there's another, ref- another referendum and the decision is reversed, rest assured that will now create tremendously complex issues. There is no straightforward way forward. There isn't. So we have lots of specific things to pray into. And we haven't even got to Putin yet, or Kim Jong-un, or Assad, and a host of others. There are very specific things going on that we are to pray into specifically. If we've been entrusted with this, it's our priestly duty. So we've got to make sure that we're praying. (laughs) The second word is prayers, which is a more general word. It's a helpful reminder that no matter what's going on, those who lead have a very complex job and would benefit much more from our prayers than from our critique. I will say that again. They will benefit much more from our prayers than from our critique because they have a very, very complex job. If you're a carpenter, I'm not going to venture to tell you how to do it because I'm not a carpenter. If you're a makeup artist, same goes. (laughs) You would have guessed that one. Let's be careful we don't assume we know how to govern a nation. It's highly complex. Incredible pressures. Not for the faint-hearted. We will do well to pray, brothers and sisters. Now, some of you may well be called into the political realm. Run at it with the energy that God gives. Grow into all the wisdom that you will need. You may get to a place where you can advise such people. The rest of us would do well to clothe ourselves with humility and faith and to use our words to that end and it will accomplish a whole lot more than vain discussion. Thirdly, intercessions. This brings in the idea of praying on behalf of others. It's a sobering thought that the majority of leaders and governors, at least in our part of the world, will not be praying to the living God for themselves. They won't be. Okay? I would venture that they are therefore especially vulnerable as they rely merely on their own resources and on the resources of other fallible people. Let us stand in the gap and pray for them. Because if we don't, they're not going to be praying for themselves. Let us make their name known before God. Let their name be heard in heaven so they can be helped. So there can be the kind of blessing that we're going to look at in a moment. Finally, thanksgiving. This is extraordinary. Paul says we have to give thanks for them. What does it tell us? First, it tells us that leadership and authority are in essence a good thing. A thing from God that we are to learn to be grateful for God to those who are over us. They have embraced the pressure that many of us would shrink back from. It's extraordinary. We're to thank God for them. Personally, I am, this is, I find it quite easy in one sense. I'm grateful for the UK. I'm grateful for the Magna Carta. It's extraordinary. 
extraordinary uh, thing that was signed centuries ago whereby everyone is under the law. It's wonderful. It's magnificent. I'm grateful for that. I'm grateful for our democratic system, even with its unpredictable twists and turns. I'm grateful for it with its checks and balances, with a system where there's always to be as much as possible a robust opposition, where there's accountability, where the nation can be heard. I am grateful for these things. And many have given their lives for this and have been left behind, have died or have left behind others, brokenhearted, because they have laid down their life for the kind of democratic freedom that we enjoy. And today on Remembrance Sunday, it's so important that we just stop and we ourselves very respectfully give thanks to those who have laid down their lives and to those families around the world that were without a loved one as a result of someone laying down their life so that we could have the kind of freedom, safety to go out on the streets that we have. So I want to ask you just to be silent for a moment. I'm going to pray and then we'll pick up the sermon again. Lord, we're humbled by the courage of those who have laid down their life, Lord, in two great wars. And even in other conflicts since, regardless, Lord, of what we think about those particular conflicts themselves, those, Lord, who have, who have paid the highest price, we thank you for the freedoms that we enjoy in our nation. I'm grateful. I am grateful. I'm so grateful, Lord. Help us to be a Grateful people. Thank you, Lord, for the freedom and safety that we live in. Thank you for our justice system, though not perfect. Thank you, Lord God. Thank you that it is not crippled. Thank you, Lord, that it functions. Thank you for accountability. Thank you for these things. We are grateful to you. Amen. But you know, democracy is not the final answer, it's flawed. There's only one flawless government. It's the government of Christ. It's the government of Jesus. And in that we put our final hope. Now it's so important. You don't, you don't see that as some ethereal thing out there. That is the plan of God for the government of our planet, the government of Jesus Christ. All of the nations are his inheritance. The Bible says we're living in the age where all of his enemies are being placed under his feet. When that moment comes, he will then return and establish his kingdom, brand new heavens and a brand new earth. It will be as real, more real than this. You must get out of your head this idea of kind of spirits singing forever and that's it. It's just not real enough. It won't do. It, won't, it will not do. There is an eternity of a new heavens and a new earth, a physical eternity without sin, without tears, without sickness, without death. Hallelujah. Under the reign of Christ. That is what we go for. That is why we remain peaceful. No matter what system we're under and what's happening, there's a peace. We're not alarmed. Paul says in Philippians, you're not alarmed and it's a sign of your salvation and of the destruction of those who don't know what you know because it's the way, why aren't you alarmed? It's peace God brings. We know where this is going. This is this quote from the Screwtape Letters, C.S. Lewis. It's probably not the one you read. Oh, there's a brilliant one going around, but apparently it's not actually, it's a fake. <laughs> anyway, this is 
This one apparently isn't, so <laughs> I'll probably be proved wrong later. But it says this. Screw that letter is a letter by C.S. Lewis written, and it's kind of fictional, but the idea is it's, it's one demon kind of helping another demon, training him up in terms of how to, how to uh, deceive and, and uh, Christians and stuff like that. So this is the demon speaking to the other demon. So inveterate, that means ingrained. So ingrained, it's about Christians, is their appetite for heaven, that our best method at this stage of attaching them to earth is to make them believe that earth can be turned into heaven at some future date by politics or eugenics, that is the science of improving a population by controlled breeding to increase the occurrence of desirable characteristics, or science or psychology or whatnot. It's very insightful. Let's give them some kind of utopian dream that they can go after, but that will come to nothing. God rescue us from that kind of naivety. Our enemy longs for us to be fixated with that which is uncertain and shakeable in order to get us to either build on an uncertain foundation or give disproportionate amounts of energy to things that will not remain. We must be engaged with the world around us, but we can only do so fruitfully if we have that aroma of the eternal kingdom about us. Without that, we will not be fruitful in it. So why pray? Here's what Paul says. So that, so that basically, so that wise decisions are made by the leaders that lead to us, the church, being able to lead the kind of lives that enable the easy and peaceful flow of the gospel through the church. It's for the good of the church that we pray for the leaders because the good of the church ought to usher in the harvest. See his logic. That we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This is good and it's pleasing in the sight of God. Who wants everyone to be saved? So it seems there's a flow here of understanding that if good decisions are made, we're not spending our whole life, you know, under some sort of tyranny where we have to be distracted by this and survival, but we can just flow in life and therefore we can give ourselves without distraction and kind of panicking and things to the thing that we are here for, which is to share the good news of Jesus. And then because God's desire is that everyone can hear the gospel. You see, so it's, this, is, this is Paul's reasoning here. Pray for them that they don't make crazy decisions. So we can get on and live dignified, quiet, peaceful, godly lives. And through that, many people can find out about Jesus and get saved. It's lovely logic. There it is. The church is God's plan A. That's why, that's why on a Tuesday morning, we pray for the church. And we say, this isn't selfish. The, the church is God's plan for those who are not yet don't know his forgiveness, they don't know eternal life, they don't know what it is to be born again. The church is God's plan for the world to hear about Jesus. So the more filled with the Spirit we are, the more walking in truth we are, the more godly we're living, then the world gets to hear about Christ. So it's really important that we don't have the church as some marginalised thing. The church is the plan A for God. The church has been entrusted with the gospel. The church is the pillar and buttress of the truth. You know what a buttress is? In the old days, you'd have pillars, and then, and then either side of the pillar, there would be these big slabs, big stones, and they're called the buttresses. And so the idea is, is, is like, it's like the truth of the gospel is like this kind of roof, and the church is the pillar and the buttress. The church holds up the truth, holds aloft the truth of the gospel. It's what a privilege. We are the pillar and the buttress of the truth. So if the church is not doing that, then the truth caves in. It's still true, but the truth is not being upheld and displayed as it should be because the church has crumbled. So we pray, oh God, we pray for our leaders. 
We pray for them, oh Lord, so that we can live dignified, quiet, godly lives and get on with what we've been commissioned to do, which is to make disciples of all nations. There it is. There it is, you see. Eternal perspective. If you haven't got that eternal perspective, you're going to keep stumbling. You're going to keep having issues with, why should I pray for this? Why should I pray for that? Because you haven't understood. No, broaden out. Do not put your hope in this age. Don't do that. You will be flummoxed. You will be flawed again and again, one way or another. We're not to be cynical, but we're not to put our ultimate hope in these things. We should be wiser than that, brothers and sisters. We ought to be wiser than that. God has not left us in the dark. Come on. We can bring an eternal perspective to the situation. Those around us are crying out what is going on. And there's theory after theory. We can bring an eternal perspective. We can bring peace. We can bring grace and truth. We can bring the healing balm of the gospel to a divided nation and an anxious world. We mustn't be duped into what's been called the social gospel. If we just do what's right and get the structures and establishments of society fixed up, all will be well. Mustn't be duped by that. The cross of Christ tells us a few things. Number one, we're all up the creek without a paddle. I'm as messed up as Donald Trump. Okay? All right? I'm not straight. I'm crooked. I need Jesus. I'm messed up, diseased with sin. Okay? I am not on higher ground at all. I'm up the creek without a paddle. That's what the cross tells me. I put him there. If I was the only person on the planet, Jesus would still have died for me for two reasons. Number one, he loves me that much. Number two, my sin is that serious. The cross of Christ tells us that such is the seriousness of sin. None of us get to pick up stones. None of us get to. Don't do it. Don't pick up stones. Start throwing them because you'll get found out. The cross of Christ tells us that there is a way back to God for anyone who will come on their knees and give up the game of self-righteousness and any other form of spiritual trickery. There is a way that has been made for us to be reconciled to God and it's by the work of Jesus Christ. And I add nothing to it. Repeat nothing. The cross of Christ tells us the wages of sin is death and without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. But that the blood of the perfect, truly righteous man, Jesus, has been poured out to satisfy the wrath of a holy God and pay the price for our folly and pride. So I want to sing. The cross of Christ tells us the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. And he will turn away none who come in repentance and faith. And because he's risen from the dead, he will come to us and take up his dwelling inside of us. The cross of Christ tells us it's God's desire for a huge harvest. Jesus says, I will not turn away any who come to me. And I want to end with an appeal. Maybe you've never really come to Jesus. You might have come to church. It's a different thing altogether. You can go to McDonald's. It does not make you a hamburger. <laughs> you ought to come to Jesus. Don't, it doesn't matter if you, well, you know, well, my, my parents were pastors. So have you come to Jesus? <laughs> have you repented of your sin and put your trust in him? Have you clung to him as your only hope? Have you called out on him? 
to save you and rescue you. The Bible promises as you do so, he will come to you. He will save you, rescue you, make you into a brand new creation and you will know about it. And so will all those around you. Have you done it? I say, I'm on a journey. Well, how long is that journey going to be? Just how long is that journey going to be? What are you going to do about Jesus? What are you going to do about him? Are you going to repent of your sins and put your trust in him? Because I'll tell you now, if you, do, you say you're going to do it tomorrow, tomorrow doesn't ever come. If you know the truth, act. Act. Give your life to him. He's calling you to repent so he can forgive you, adopt you, pour his love into your heart by his spirit. He is longing to do that. But he's not going to do that on a proud, unrepentant heart. So come to Jesus. And Christian, pray. Please. We're all, we're all, we're all, we're all in the same boat. We're all, trying, we're all squeezed. We're all squashed. We're all pressured. I know. Let's help each other. Let's exalt each other. Let's encourage each other because this is the real business. Amen? Shall we stand? We're going to take the bread and wine together now. So important. Get back to the cross. It all flows from the cross. We're putting our right place at the cross. He's putting his right place there, at the centre. So if you're a believer, as we sing, come and take the bread and wine. Pray. Pray to him. Draw near to him. Don't get too caught up with talking. Pray. <laughs> Talk to Jesus. Call out to Jesus. Call out to Jesus. If you've never done it before, call out to Jesus. Then go and take the bread and wine because you're saying, Jesus, I'm coming to you for the first time. Let's take this so seriously, shall we? Amen.